Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Big thanks to eBay for sponsoring this episode of Pass Gas. Passion, drive, patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. We're talking superchargers, turbos, exhaust kits, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need for the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, now for the show. Today on Past Gas, we're talking about the early years of Ayrton Senna. You know him as the legendary driver famous for winning multiple Formula One championships in 1988, 1990, and 1991. He won an incredible 41 Grand Prix on 17 different tracks over the course of nine seasons. You probably also know how the story ends. At the age of 34, while racing at the 1994 San Marino Grand Prix, Senna crashed on lap seven, leaving the track at a speed over 180 miles per hour and slammed into a concrete wall, killing him on impact. The body of Ayrton Senna has begun its final journey home to Brazil. This tragic death cut a storied career short, and much like Kurt Cobain, Heath Ledger, or Tupac, it froze Senna's accomplishments and magnetic personality in amber. Deprived of the slow decline that any great talent at the top of their profession will eventually fall victim to, these names are instead forever frozen in their glory years, and so they remain forever young. Senna is now a legend, but where do legends begin? With an origin story, of course. So what's Senna's version of being bitten by a radioactive spider, finding a weird lamp with a genie, or floating down the Nile in a basket made of reeds? 
Well, like Spider-Man, Aladdin, or Moses, Senna is mononymous. But before Senna was Senna, his last name wasn't even Senna at all. His parents worried that he was uncoordinated and even had him tested for it. He was born into wealth, but although wealth can definitely give you access to the world of racing, it can't make you fast. And Senna wasn't just fast, he was the fastest. So what was the moment Senna truly became Senna? To answer that, we need to start on March 21st, 1960, the day when in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Ayrton Senna da Silva was born. Welcome to Pass Gas. That was a long intro. Uh, that was great, though, man. I'm <laughs> really good. I yeah. got a little choked up there for a second. I mean, this guy is so important and just such like, I don't know, he's just a legend. And he's just like so important to so many people. And I'm really excited that we're going to dive really deep into his life. But I mean, just, oh, man, just I got a little teary eyed when you're talking about <laughs> the forever young stuff. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, you know, Senna is a, like I said in the intro, he's a legend, um, almost like a mythic figure at this point. Just such a hallowed name, so revered in 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 motorsports and the, the car world in general. It's just like, oh, yeah, you hear Senna and you're just like, he was, I mean, he was the greatest. But, like, it's just like an instant assumption of just, like, perfection, basically, you know? Right, yeah. He was like Michael Jordan. Yeah, no thought given to it. And we're going to see why that is because uh, there's a lot of good reason for that. I think um, the moment where it hit where I was like, oh, damn, was when when I didn't realize he was 34 when he died and I'm just about to turn 34. And so I'm like, damn. Like, I got <laughs> I a lot anything. of racing to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Joe, you're the Ayrton Senna of automotive podcasting. Ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> That's <not> something <laughs> oh, I want to hear, man. <laughs> I was talking about how I am scared about dying. <laughs> but what I've noticed is a lot of uh, a lot of pieces that talk about Senna uh, don't really dive into his early life, which is what we're going to do today. And I'm really excited about that. Hopefully, we'll give people some insight into where this dude came from. And um, I think, yeah, without further ado, let's get into the life, the early life of one Ayrton Senna. Are you guys ready? I'm ready. It's ready as I'll ever be. You are right. ready. Vroom. <laughs> Let's Joe, do it. You want to right. give us uh fired up? Uh, I think my new thought, my new thing is uh, fired up. Oh, oh, nice. Like dude. two different words. Fired up. <laughs> fired I don't know. Maybe up. it'll work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can see that on a shirt for sure. But D U P. Oh yeah, F I get fire it. Fire sure. up. I get it, man. It's great. It's solid. See, memes are better when you explain them, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Ayrton yeah. Senna da Silva was born in 1960 in Sao Paulo, Brazil, at the Pro Matre. I'm gonna. Uh, by the way, I'm gonna butcher every Brazilian a lot of, name. A lot of Brazilian words. Yeah, a lot in of this a lot one. of Portuguese, a lot of Brazilian. I'm gonna butcher it all today. Uh, just letting you know. Uh, Pro Matre Maternity Hospital of Santana, a hospital I assumed was named after the uh, legendary guitarist. Ayrton's it's a father. hot one. <laughs> All right. Ayrton's father, Milton Da Silva, was a landowner and factory owner, and among other businesses, Milton owned an auto parts company. 
and his knowledge and connections within the industry would become a key entry point for Ayrton into the world of racing. Safe to say, the family was wealthy and lived very comfortably in an upscale neighborhood in Sao Paulo. I live in an upscale neighborhood now. You're like okay. the Ayrton center of your neighborhood. Yeah. No need to flex, dude. Can't help it. Ayrton's mother was Nita Senna da Silva, a name that would uh, later prove to have huge significance. Ayrton was the middle child with an older sister named Vivian and a younger brother, Leonardo. In 1960, Sao Paulo was a bustling metropolis of 4 million people. It had just surpassed Rio de Janeiro to become Brazil's most populated city, and to this day remains the most populated city in all of South America. Much like New York, the city has always been a melting pot for different cultures and ethnicities on the continent. In addition to being cosmopolitan, Sao Paulo was also a major hub of industry in South America, and many districts in the city's region were heavily industrialized. One of those industries was cars, so the Da Silva family's link to that industry would not have been uncommon. Ayrton's childhood, which was geographically centered in this car capital of South America, was naturally steeped in cars and racing. Nolan, you grew up in like a car family. Yeah, um, but that didn't really have anything to do with like where I lived. Uh, no, yeah. Well, maybe. I don't know. I think there's something about small towns that just kind of like naturally inclines them to be... Uh, have a have a good car culture i think it yeah. i think so especially in california like we you know there like every year there's like a cruise night uh um and like i just i still know a ton of people a ton of old guys that all have their multiple hot rods you know the the economy when that tank that kind of affected the car culture at the high school because we couldn't like buy sick cars anymore but there's a, a few of my friends had uh like my friend cody had a mustang a 64 and a half mustang my buddy eric had like a 69 uh nice. ranchero which had the front end of a torino which is pretty, de- Ooh, pretty dope cool. damn yeah when ayrton was a child a familiar yet thrilling destination would have been the autodromo jose carlos pace look guys we are gonna butcher i don't even know where to begin i would say pache no that sounds awful when i say that out loud i don't know take your best shot james <laughs> Hold on. Wait, when when Ayrton was a child, a familiar yet thrilling destination would have been the Autodromo Jose Carlos Pace, more commonly known as Interlagos. Interlagos was and is a world-class auto racing track built in 1942 that hosted its first Formula One race in 1972. Interlagos is probably best known for its great number of inclines and challenging hills, as well as its counterclockwise layout. It's a super dope track. The course now features a karting circuit named after Ayrton Senna, but in the 1960s and 70s of Ayrton's youth, such an honor was just something the boy would dream about. Decades before Ayrton became a legend worthy of naming a track after, Interlagos would play a major role in his development as a racer. At the age of four, Ayrton was given his first go-kart, which his father had custom-built. The cart itself was one horsepower with a lawnmower engine and would spark not only a racing career, but a lifelong love of carts. As Ayrton climbed the ranks of racing, he would look back fondly on his karting years. For a racer known for his pure intensity and concentration, perhaps there was something elementally appealing about the relative simplicity of a cart. As a very young child of three or four, Ayrton ironically had issues with balance and motor coordination that led to his parents getting him tested, but no problems were revealed. Interestingly, 
Ayrton was also left-handed. Well, so he was just been it. clumsy? He was just yeah, a yeah. clumsy little kid? Just a, but like clumsy enough that his parents would be like, we got to get this kid tested. <laughs> is he <laughs> Is he okay? <laughs> well, I, uh, I'm well, uh, Mr. De Silva, we didn't find anything wrong with your child. Uh, he is left-handed, though. So. Oh, put him back. <laughs> put him back? He's six. He's not done cooking. <laughs> While apparently uh, being worrisomely clumsy, he was also very athletic, proving to be very talented at any sport that he put his mind and body to. Clearly a racer of Ayrton's caliber, has to have both incredible physical and mental capabilities. Maybe those early struggles were a symptom of a mind-body connection being uniquely forged in a way that would eventually reveal itself as racing genius. I don't think you can be, like, dumb and be a really good driver. No way, dude. Those guys are so I think so you have smart. to have, like, a fundamental uh, acceptance of physics and just inherent knowledge of that. Yeah, in, like, the same way that, like, I remember <laughs> this is kind of off track, but in like junior high when we were like learning physics, uh, my teacher, Mr. West, um, used Tony Hawk oh, as Mr. an example. West. Mr. West, Mr. West, Mr. West. Um, used Tony Hawk <laughs> as an example of someone who's like, you know, Tony Hawk is a great skater because he understands physics. Do you guys want to be great skaters? Well, pay attention. I was like, okay, that's <laughs> a that's bit a really of a stretch. Good in. Right, if I was a cool. teacher, I'd use something like that. Yeah, Mr. Sure. Mr. West was really cool. Uh, Can't believe that Kanye West taught at your high school. Yeah, that was pretty <laughs> weird. Now, although his father immediately saw Ayrton's potential as a racer, he can't have fully imagined the consequences of that early gift. Much as whoever gave Michael Jordan his first basketball couldn't have imagined, he'd one day star in Space Jam, opposite of Bugs <laughs> Bunny. Yeah, I mean, who could have imagined, right? Speaking of cartoons, an interesting side note to this period in Senna's history is that in 1994, a Brazilian comic book launched called Senina, meaning Little Senna. The character is described as an eight-year-old with unruly hair, a bulbous nose, and red overalls, based on the uniform Senna wore while racing for McLaren. The cartoon launched just months before Senna's death, and after Senna himself was gone, Senina became a massive pop culture phenomenon in Brazil. Other characters within the cartoon, like, and I'm sorry about the pronunciation, <laughs> Mu Roy, which translates to my hero, Sanita's magical yellow and green talking helmet. Can I yeah. do all the Brazilian words in this? Sure. Uh, Meu Heroi. That's good, Joe. That's better than mine. <laughs> Bra or, Portuguese is such a crazy language because it sounds like a German person speaking Spanish, in my opinion. And <laughs> yeah. some French in there, too. Yeah, it's so strange. Meanwhile, at the age of seven, the non-animated, live-action, real Ayrton da Silva was learning to drive a full-size car by driving a Jeep around his family's property. Safe oh, yeah. to say he wasn't wearing a magical helmet. During this time, he also learned to change gears without using the clutch, a necessity for racing. And you have to wonder how a seven-year-old could even reach the pedals, but setting a precedent for accomplishment and persistence that would last his entire life, Ayrton found a way. Damn, dude. Wait, but I'm how do you switch gears already. without a clutch? You just match you the revs. Rev match. I st I've never learned how to do that, um, but it's totally possible. Zach Job can do it. Yeah. Well, yeah. I I broke Zach Job's car, uh, mm -hmm. and he drove it all the way home without using the clutch down PCH with in like traffic. 
in traffic. It was like the manliest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Zach Job is going to be a great dad. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. I want him to be my dad. <laughs> By the time he was nine, Ayrton competed in his first kart race. As luck would have it, he drew his first pole position as well, a fortuitous sign of things to come. The race was held in a parking lot in a Sao Paulo neighborhood of Campinas, with many of the drivers being twice Ayrton's age. Can you imagine being 18 years old and then losing pole position to a nine-year-old? Yeah. Ayrton would lead much of the race before flipping the cart with three laps to go and failing to finish. That sucks. Dude, um, Joe, did you go to a cart track recently? Not recently, but like... I We went uh, with Donut. Oh, yeah. No, I'm talking like... Did you ever go to the gas carts, though? Out at Yeah, uh, I went Calspeed? down in Fontana. Yeah. Dude, I <laughs> I went there like sometime last year and just got my ass kicked by these kids. Yeah. There's yeah. some like kids that go there every weekend that are just insane. And it's... Jeremiah is so good at karting. Like really? the gas carts specifically. Jeremiah yeah, has it all, dude. Jeremiah Burton, host of Bumper to Bumper on Donut Media YouTube channel. Yeah, you might remember him from our PT Cruiser series <laughs> that we did on this show. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, in case you're imagining one of these carts like something you drive at your local amusement park, that's not what these things were. Racing carts at the time were extremely lightweight, a uh, little more than 100 pounds, and em- employed hydraulic disc brakes and could reach speeds of up to 60 miles per hour. Nowadays, they're even faster. It's crazy. Interestingly enough, the cart that Ayrton raced in at the time was once owned by Emerson Fittipaldi, a name that was already legendary in Brazilian motorsports. He had won the F1 World Championship for Lotus in 1972 while Ayrton was a child and the 1974 championship for McLaren. Later, he would switch to North American IndyCar racing and win the Indy 500 twice. So was his cart like decades old or was it he just a tiny guy that had a little cart then he was like here here's my cart uh i mean it was probably old but also cart design didn't hasn't really i mean it's changed a lot like you wouldn't want to race a cart from the 60s or 70s today but like the the fundamentals are still there where i mean it's it's ayrton's first cart he's not going to have the best one out there but he can still be competitive if he's good enough which he was if that makes sense cool. yeah yeah You have to imagine that Fittipaldi loomed larger than life for Ayrton as he was racing as a kid. For a comparison, the age difference between Ayrton and Fittipaldi was 14 years, almost exactly the same age difference as Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. And much like that relationship, what started as mere inspiration would later turn into direct influence, a connection which we'll explore later in the episode. At the age of 13, Ayrton competed in his first sanctioned event, which took place at the Interlagos go-kart track, racing against older boys in their late teens. Again, he would start on pole position, and this time Ayrton would win that race on the track that would later one day be renamed the Cartodromo Ayrton Senna. So That's so cool. Yeah, so for the like first four years of his life, he was ra- like the you know, parking lot tracks, which is pretty sick. Um, but now he's getting those points. He's in a series, you know? His number for that race was 42 which in Japanese culture is considered unlucky because the number in Japanese sounds like the word for dying. <laughs> on a, on a, don't laugh. Uh, on a lighter note, it's also the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything, according to Douglas Adams in the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the, to the Universe? The galaxy. 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 Thank you. 
For the time being, Ayrton continued to race in go-kart championships, winning six championships across South America. He proved to be a dominant racer. For instance, in the Sao Paulo go-kart championship, he won five out of 10 races and placed second in three of the remaining five contests. As a teenager, he studied at the... Colegio <laughs> Rio Branco. He studied at the Colegio Rio Branco, studying physics, math, chemistry, and English. He was apparently a below-average student with grades averaging 68%. But you Ooh. have to imagine his mind was always elsewhere. I'm talking about on the track. Despite his poor grades, nearly everyone who met Ayrton would describe him as in, as extremely intelligent. Yeah, I relate to that. You know, I yeah. was a, a C C student. C, I was a I know. was a D minus student. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was like barely there. <laughs> in high school, I definitely did not take it very seriously, which is stupid because looking back on like the work they give you in high school, it's like that is so easy. <laughs> it's so easy compared to like stuff you you'd have to do later in college. Yeah. If Jim uh, had six watermelons and I'm like, oh, my, what is this? My senior year of high school, they gave me a new locker and I forgot the combination. And so I just never went to it the entire year and all my books were in it. My high school, we had lockers, but they didn't let us use them. What? It was so stupid. Yeah. So we had to like carry these freaking books around everywhere. Oh my mm. God. You should have just left them at home. I That's why graduated. my back is so muscular. Yeah. That's very muscular. <laughs> His father, Milton, in a clip you can see in the excellent documentary Senna, available on Netflix, was already predicting his son. Not a sponsor. Won. It's not a sponsored, but it's a great. I watch it probably five times a year. So his father was already predicting his son would one day race in Formula One. However grand the ambitions of both father and son, during this time, it's clear that Ayrton truly loved karting and was not using it as a mere stepping stone to greater fame and speeds. He would later describe karting as pure driving, pure racing, without any politics, no money involved. It was real racing. Kart racing was to Ayrton what Hamburg was to the Beatles, or who are overrated, and what that Swiss <laughs> patent office was to Einstein, a safe and early pasture to explore and refine his talent before progressing to a career under the spotlight. I saw one of the coolest pictures of Einstein I've ever seen He's got his tongue out and he's he looks crazy. He looks like he's partying. Yeah, I, dude. Honestly, I want to get a poster of it and put it up in my room. Yeah, man. <laughs> it's like I like that poster. I, I know it's one you're talking about. It's great. It's so cool because he does look like he's partying. It's so cool, that poster, because, you know, we all know Einstein's smart. Yeah, right. 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 It's, yeah, it's that's a like, given. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like when someone does something stupid, like we say, way to go, Einstein, because... <laughs> It's like a joke because I he was that so that smart. I thought that was actually like a way to call people smart. Is no, that no, no, no. People have been yeah. People have been calling, saying, "Way to go, Einstein!" To you, oh they're my like, God. "Yeah, man, I'm sorry, sorry to tell you." But it's it's he's so smart. But then in that picture, he looks like he's partying and he looks crazy. And I mean, it's just the dichotomy is amazing. And I love it so much. <laughs> the duality of man sure is a an enigma, I will yeah. say. Yeah. That's why uh, I got that picture full back tattoo. <laughs> like Roger Stone? <laughs> yeah. I have a Good Roger Lord. Stone on my back, a big face of Roger Stone. <laughs> yeah, I hope you did did you make did you uh make sure the the sunglasses looked really small on his face for some reason? 
Yeah, they look like little uh, <laughs> pogs. Pogs on his eyes. We'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Big thanks to eBay for sponsoring this episode of Pass Gas. Passion, drive, patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride alive ebay motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance we're talking superchargers turbos exhaust kits and more whether you're into speed power or style ebay motors has you covered with over 122 million parts for your number one ride you'll always find exactly what you're looking for and with ebay guaranteed fit your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back because with ebay motors you're burning rubber not cash With all the parts you need for the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Although karting was far from the big leagues, Ayrton was highly competitive and aggressive from the get-go. In an interview decades later with Jackie Stewart discussing Senna's pattern of aggression, Senna was put on the spot and asked to defend his higher-than-average rate of making physical contact with other cars. Senna responded that he viewed himself as a racer who was, quote, designed to win races. It's clear that That's even sick. at a young age, yeah, even at a young age, yeah, I'm made different. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been designed to win. God made me different. Where, okay, so God designed you to lose. Yeah, he made you <laughs> Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> me, he designed me to win. And maybe that's why you don't understand how I operate, because you were designed to lose. Maybe you yeah, don't understand no it, Einstein. Yeah, way no to go, No disrespect to the Einstein. Scots out there. I'm sorry. I thought it was just an easy joke. 
Jackie Stewart, of course, his own legendary figure. If you haven't seen the Jackie Stewart documentary of him at Monaco, Ooh, it's so definitely good. check that out. It's so good. It feels so cool. Yeah, I still yeah. haven't seen that. It's, it's really good. It's so good. It's like very like uh, Verte or whatever. Cinema Verte. Cinema like, Verte. Is it on Pluto TV? Because that's the only app that I have. <laughs> no, it's on Crunkle. Uh, <laughs> oh dude is that a subsidiary of grunge <laughs> yeah 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 i mean if you have do you have the grunge access all access pass yeah i'm part of the grunge universe so okay, i could easily yeah, just download it, it. Yeah. <laughs> grunge all access is only five cents a month <laughs> 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 okay. uh, I'm crying. <laughs> it's clear. It's clear that even at a young age, Ayrton was in a sense designing himself the same way an automaker would design a car, pushing himself to the limits of human ability. While many people who watched Ayrton race in those days would recognize his potential to push himself and achieve greatness, his success was anything but a sure thing. Racing is incredibly competitive, and the pressure and burnout is constant and intense. So while what came next for Ayrton now seems predestined, at the time it was anything but. Whew. If you recall, Emerson Fittipaldi had already played a role once in Ayrton's career when Ayrton inherited his cart. Fittipaldi already knew Ayrton's father, Milton, as a wealthy businessman active in the industry of San Paolo, but hadn't met Ayrton yet, although he had heard about the young racer's early successes on the track. One day at Interlagos, Milton and Ayrton watched Fittipaldi testing cars on the track. After the test, Milton approached Fittipaldi and asked him for advice on guiding Ayrton's budding racing career. Fittipaldi advised him to contact Ralph Furman, the founder of Van Diemen, the manufacturer of Formula Ford cars located in Norfolk, England. Fittipaldi's advice came from experience. In the late 60s, he himself had crossed the Atlantic to race for Van Diemen. He clearly saw Ayrton as someone who could literally follow in his footsteps, and his advice could be summed up as, just do what I did. <laughs> Milton, It's and easy, it, just do yeah, it. Just do what I did. Milton and his son would follow up on the lead, and Diemen would offer Ayrton a spot. However, in 1980, Ayrton declined the offer. Ayrton continued to kart race, and the next year, Demon would offer him the same opportunity. So, in 1981, at the age of 20, Ayrton made a pivotal decision. He had both dominated and outgrown the world of South American kart racing. He decided to travel to Europe to compete for the first time outside of Brazil. It was a huge choice. Senna made the decision to travel, literally, to the other side of the globe to a new country with a new language and a different culture, to race in what was the equivalent of single-A baseball. The sacrifice was huge, and so too must have been Ayrton's desire to race. I feel like there could have been a, an English equivalent of baseball in there. Like, single-A single cricket. Single... <laughs> well, no, that'd be like going... Because like club soccer is different over there, right? Like There are actual little literal clubs that can move up in the ranks of... Yeah. Football, right? That's Football. pretty cool how that that's pretty cool how that works, actually. I like that. I think that's really cool. Like a really low level team, if they beat like higher level teams, they get to go up, right? That's like pretty I don't sick. know. I don't know, man. 
I'm just I could just be making <laughs> shit up. Yeah, man. I don't it know. Does, that's not the way it happens in like a triple A baseball. You kind of go up A to double A to triple A. You don't, yeah, the like, team doesn't go up. Right, but in in club soccer though, the clubs move up in dif- into different leagues. I don't know, Nolan. I don't into know. Into Premier League. The no, Premier League. Nolan, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, James, I you're don't the soccer know. expert. I know I am, but that's one thing I don't know. <laughs> that's the one thing I don't know. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I haven't gotten there yet. I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> I'm not that far in the book. <laughs> I'm only on the second book of soccer. <laughs> I don't know how the teams work yet. Anyway, Ayrton's first car in England would be the Van Diemen RF81. It was a single-seater, open-wheel race car, which means that the, the wheels were outside the body of the car, just in case you didn't know that. Uh, the class was Formula Ford, which originated in the 1960s as a way to give aspiring drivers a way of learning Formula One-style driving. While the rules allowed for uh, variation in the bodywork of each chassis, each car was required to use a specific Ford engine, which at the time of Ayrton's participation was the Cortina 1600 CC, which made 125. This was the one that um, Lotus started messing with in Cosworth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's where they, I would imagine that's probably one of the ways they originated as companies. Uh, this was a pretty serious engine. However, unlike Formula One, Formula Ford cars didn't get to use wings to create downforce, and racing slicks were also not allowed. They had to use like road style tires with a tread. Sounds slidey. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, you learn, uh, learn a lot of car control that way. A lot of car control that way, Nolan. Yep, you do. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, you've you're learning about car control, right? You're you're in the book. I'm in like uh, a second car book, so I am just I just got to car control. Right. Did you um, spend a ton of money on Encyclopedia Britannica again? Yeah, <laughs> he James is single handedly keeping the traveling salesman industry alive. Yeah, bought some knives, <laughs> vacuum cleaner, a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I moved to the burbs, and this is how we buy stuff now. I haven't opened Amazon in months. <laughs> I did have a guy, I hope he's listening, um, and I'm definitely not making fun of him. I'm sorry I didn't get back to him. Uh, he hit me up on Instagram in the DMs, and he's like, hey, man, trying to make money. Uh, can I practice selling knives to you? And That's I was cool. like, yeah, I might I might say yes. <laughs> I don't know. They all I think have that's a, pretty cool. That's a, a, that would be like a really good sales tactic, too. Like, yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. And then he like... Before you know it, you have a whole set of knives. Yeah, you're just like, <laughs> yeah. hey, like, I know we're just like practicing, but like, are those not those knives pretty good? And then he's like, actually, yeah, they are. And then <laughs> Casey's like, why do we have so many knives? <laughs> I and don't know, why, babe. I think why, I got tricked. Why? Actually, why are they all neon green with radioactive symbols on them? And they <laughs> well, look, you can cut through them. a can with it. Why are we cutting through cans? <laughs> I actually could use some new knives. Well, I guess that guy <laughs> hit up the right person. <laughs> he hasn't even talked to me. All right, got me. What a galoop. What a galoop. What a big, James, you big galoop. <laughs> All right. Ayrton's first Formula Ford race took place at Brands Hatch. Brands Hatch. Brands Hatch. I would love to go to Brands Hatch. It looks sick. Ayrton, still going as Ayrton Da Silva, was driving the previous year's car, since a 1981 model was not yet available to him. He was the low man on the totem pole, after all. Uh, he placed fifth, however. The next week, racing at Thruxton. Thruxton! British, British places have the best 
but also weirdest names. That's like a Triumph motorcycle model, right? Yeah, I think so. Thruxton. Thruxton. Uh, he placed third. Uh, he got on that podium. The next week, again at Brands Hatch, he won with a nine-second margin of victory over two heats. To this day, uh, Ralph Furman still displays the laurel, uh, the you know the wreath that Ayrton won that day um, at Van Diemen headquarters, which is really nine seconds is a gap. Yeah, dude. Especially in a in a in a spec class like yeah like that. That's that's pretty impressive. That's called driving, baby. Yeah, yeah that's chapter one. That's chapter one in the book of Britannica. <laughs> Even before Ayrton arrived, Demon was considered the best team in Formula Ford. They had a habit of recruiting South American racers, including, as you may recall, Emerson Fittipaldi. Other Demon racers included Argentine Enrique Quique Mancilla and Brazilians Roberto Moreno and Raul Bosel. Ayrton fit right in. In his first year of competition, he raced 20 times and placed first and incredibly dominant 12 times. That's crazy. Damn. The adjustment from karting to a much more powerful, heavier car was (laughs) simply not an issue for our boy. (laughs) Despite his early dominance, there were signs that Ayrton was not fully convinced of his future. After the season, he decided to retire from Formula Ford and move back to Brazil to work for his father and his many businesses. It's hard to know whether he was homesick or truly doubting his future as a racer. The latter is harder to believe. As before he left England, Ayrton was offered a 10,000-pound contract to race in Formula Ford 2000, the next highest class that racers progressed through. Hey, man, I get it. He's uh, a little homesick. I get it, man. For his, his country, the whole ocean away. And Brazil's a, Brazil's a popping place. It's warm. You know, it's got a lot of culture that's very different than, you know, England. I wonder. I wonder if it was like the food is probably way better. If he didn't grow up in such uh, a wealthy family, like would that ten thousand pound contract, like anyone else would have jumped on that right away, probably right? I would imagine so. Yeah. Yeah. Another factor in his decision to to depart from England was likely Ayrton's short-lived marriage to Lillian de Vasconcelos Souza. The two had known each other since childhood in Brazil and married in 1981. However, Vasconcelos apparently couldn't adapt to life in England. They divorced in 1982, the same year Ayrton temporarily moved back to Brazil. Their marriage would last a mere eight months. Of the relationship, Vasconcelos would later say, I was his second passion. His first passion was racing. There was nothing more important in the world to him. Not family, not wife, nothing. Ayrton would never have children, and for the rest of his life, his relationships with women appeared to be short-lived and superficial. He's married to the game, dude. Yeah, dude. An interview with Playboy Brazil from 1990 provides salacious insight into young Ayrton's relationships with the ladies. Ayrton divulged that his first time sleeping with a woman was at the age of 13 at a club in downtown Sao Paulo. In Ayrton's words, I was very small at the time, so they didn't let me in. Suddenly, I saw that a big, really, really big woman goes in. She was blonde and a prostitute. Later, of course, I realized that I had nothing to do with what is important, but at the time, it was good. Wow. Returning again to 1982, a newly divorced Ayrton took the Formula Ford 2000 job offer and returned to England, but not before making one extremely significant change. Until that point, Ayrton had gone by his birth name, 
Ayrton da Silva. However, da Silva was one of the most common Brazilian last names, and there were so many other racers who shared it with Ayrton, causing confusion as his profile rose. Silva, passing up Silva on the inside. Silva, coming on the outside. Silva. Ayrton decided to go by his mother's name as he returned to racing, and from that point became forever known to the world as Ayrton Senna. Dude, it's like Batman. So now that Ayrton was finally Senna, he would waste no time in progressing towards F1. In 1982, at 22 years old, he moved up to the higher class Formula Ford 2000, in which the cars had slick tires and front and rear wings. In his first six races of the season, he had pole position and fastest lap for every race. He also won every single race. For the season, he topped his performance of the previous year, scoring 22 wins over 28 races. If this was baseball, Senna would be batting 780. All these achievements set new records for Formula Ford 2000. And at the end of the season, Senna would be the champion of both the European and British FF 2000 series. But nice. what's the cricket equivalent? Uh, um, that's like winning at least 12 out of 14 squimmer bowls. And hitting six wickets with your wacky doodle. Yeah. Senna was being seriously looked at by Formula One teams. However, he wasn't quite ready for the big show. There was one last intermediate league in which he wanted to prove himself. Formula Three. In November of 1982, still in the same year of his record-breaking Formula Ford 2000 run, Senna strapped into a racing route RT3 car for an exhibition race at Thruxton. He was already confirmed as a competitor for the 1983 season of F3, but this was his first chance to race in a finely tuned F3 car that was closer to an F1 car than anything he had previously driven. I I watched uh, Formula 3 at Coda when I went to the grand prix down there oh yeah and uh it's so cool um and my dream is that one day like it's obviously like a much smaller game than f1 but my dream is one day have like a donut car in <laughs> that'd Formula. be tight oh, hell yeah gas Bunky garage had a car um, really yeah wow also competing in that race was enrique mencia Sana's teammate as well as tommy burn the 1982 f3 champion tommy All burn eyes- Tommy Byrne and Tommy Byrne, <laughs> Tommy Byrne and Kike Mancia. Oh man, <laughs> nice. better get the fire extinguisher. That's a classic, Tommy Byrne. <laughs> get ready to enter the mind of Mancia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all eyes were on the younger Brazilian, now known as Senna, competing on the West Surrey Racing Team. Could he prove himself on this larger stage as he had done so many times before? The answer, well, that's an emphatic yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Thruxton had hosted the British Formula 3 championship three weeks earlier, and in securing the pole position for this exhibition race, Senna posted a qualifying time that was faster than the best time scored during any lap of the championship. Wow. Holy Damn. moly. Ayrton would go on to utterly dominate the race, winning by a whopping 13 seconds. Oh, my God. Yeah, you know, Get, like... Uh, Get this guy a freaking beige khakis because he's gapping people. (laughs) (laughs) Like you hear so often, like, you know, like Michael Jordan didn't make his high school basketball team. And, you know, like people really struggling at the beginning of their careers before they get good. It's basically like all the stories your dad tells you when you like suck at a sport. Um, (laughs) Like Senna 
didn't have any of that. He just shows up and it's like, yeah, I'm the best. I'm just really, really, really good out of yeah. the box. I was designed. I'm made yeah. better. I'm different. Yeah. So many of our favorite sports and racing stories are that of the underdog. But from the beginning, Senna's story was not going to fit into an underdog narrative. Instead, to this point in his career, he was the phenom, dominating in whatever arena he entered. Senna was never David. He was always Goliath. However, British F3 would increase pressure on Senna as a driver. And as his competition stiffened, the league would give him his first truly challenging rivalry since arriving in Europe. In F3, Senna's strategy was simple. Drive fast, take the lead, keep it up. In the spring that's of 19... That's great. That's a great strategy. That's, that's a really yeah. good strategy. I mean, if you want to win a race, it's pretty, pretty good. good. In the spring of 1983, as the F3 season began, this strategy would prove to be effective. Senna won in Silverstone on March 6th. Thruxton, March 13th. Silverstone again on March 20th. Donington Park, March 27th. Again Damn. and again, he would win, winning the first nine out of nine of the championship series races in absolutely dominant fashion. It wasn't until the 10th race of the season, again at Silverstone, that Senna would begin to experience adversity. Senna had insisted on a harder, less grippy set of tires than what technicians had advised, hoping to gain an edge by avoiding any tire changes later on. But on the sixth lap, Senna spun out, eventually re-entering the race in ninth place. He managed to overtake two racers, but then again flew off track on the seventh lap, forcing him to retire. The race was won by British-born Martin Brundle. 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 <laughs> well, now, Brundle is now uh, a commentator for the races. I think at least on NBC. Brundle was David, the underdog story that Senna never fit into. British-born, he had grown up racing on grass tracks before progressing to hot rod racing. Unlike Senna, he never raced karts, making him an unlikely fit for formula-style racing. Also unlike Senna, Brundle saw himself as a hobby racer who had achieved unlikely success and never imagined an eventual path to Formula One. If Senna could always find ways to personally excel, Martin Brundle's 1983 performance also showed that Senna could also push other racers to new levels of accomplishment as well. After his win at Silverstone, Brundle went on a hot streak, winning three races in a row. Meanwhile, Senna struggled, winning only two out of ten races as the end of the season loomed. Senna would crash three times in six races, each time as he tried and failed to overtake Brundle. In points, his lead over Brundle, dominant in the first half of the season, started to dwindle and then disappeared. In the three races leading up to the final, Brundle won every single one of them. With the points nearly tied, the final race at Thruxton would decide the championship. <gasps> Dang, okay. The race would prove to be somewhat anticlimactic. Senna, <laughs> would put, Senna would put in scorching qualifying times and take pole position. He got out to an early lead, and as described by a local newspaper, the Brazilian quite simply buckled straight down to the job and began to pull away in a relaxed fashion. Bothered by nothing mechanical or human. Senna swiftly vanished into the blue yonder. Sometimes <laughs> Goliath wins. That's a really good quote. That's a sick quote. I love it. Yeah. We'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Interestingly enough, Irene Ambrose, one of the owners of the West Surrey racing team, uh, you know, the team that Senna competed Sounds for. Sounds like a real tough bird. Uh, recalled a somewhat dubious tactic for that final race. As part of their strategy to take the lead early, 
Senna's team placed tape on top of the car's oil radiator outlet before the start of the race. This caused the oil to heat up to its ideal temperature at a faster rate because it's not cycling through that radiator. A few laps into the race, Senna loosened his seatbelt, reached back, and tore the tape away to prevent the engine from overheating. Whoa. Yeah, looking away from the track for a second, he nearly lost control of the car but steadied himself, and the ploy uh, apparently worked because uh, he won. Sounds like a needlessly risky thing to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds like the tire with the tire thing too. He was like, "Yeah, thirteen seconds is a good gap, but I'd love to have twenty seconds." Like he's just kind of getting greedy. I think, yeah. I mean, he's all about just the domination, you know, just like yeah. winning by the largest margin possible. Yeah, anything um, and anything you can do. Like uh, domination is made up of like a bunch of little things. For sure, the oil cooler story is revealing in a few ways. Clearly, Senna was highly competitive, obviously, and always looking for ways to dominate, like we said. To do so, he was willing to take risks and think in unconventional ways. As seen from both the tape incident and his higher-than-usual rate of wipeouts, Senna was comfortable with those risks, occasionally elevating to the level of real danger. While the tape anecdote must have been amusing at the time, it's hard not to look back on it in a different light now, knowing what Senna's fate would be. 11 short years later. By 1983, it was clear that Senna's ascent through the ranks of racing wouldn't end with Formula 3. In addition to winning the British Formula 3 championship, Senna also took first in the 1983 Macau Grand Prix of Formula 3. It was the 30th Macau Grand Prix to be raced on the narrow streets of the Chinese city, with some sections of the track no more than 7 meters wide. If you guys have never seen footage of the Macau Grand Prix, Every year, they should stop running it, honestly, because every year there's a huge crash. Um, it's not a F1 race anymore. It's a touring car thing, but um, it's just so stupid. <laughs> this race would mark Senna's memorable first encounter with Gerard Berger, the Austrian who would become Senna's teammate at McLaren and a close personal friend. Although Senna had the fastest lap, there was a recording error and Berger was awarded the fastest lap trophy. According to Berger, their first conversation occurred when a very serious Senna approached Berger at an after party to tell him that the award rightfully belonged to him. Even in the ultra-competitive world of auto racing, Senna was building a reputation for taking competition to another level of intensity. 1983 was an eventful year for Senna. While the F3 season was still underway, he had his first drive for a Formula One team in July, testing for British team Williams. Another great documentary, the Williams documentary. Mm -hmm. Check that out. Strapped into the car, Senna remarked, I think God is giving me a gift that I've been waiting for a long time. Sick. After taking to the track, Senna accustomed himself quickly, setting a lap time a full second faster than what the Williams team driver, Kiki Rosberg. Both sides of the negotiation played coy. With Williams expressing hesitation about signing a rookie, Senna went on to test for McLaren and the much smaller Tolman team, but still, no deal was reached with any of the teams. For his part, Senna was reluctant to commit to a long-term contract, correctly assuming that his value as an F1 driver would skyrocket after a year or two of experience. That's, That's called really confidence, smart. dude. Yeah, dude. Is there yeah. a lot of there are a lot of like like F2 and F3 drivers that come up to F1 and they just totally blow it because they're they're just not at that level. But he's just like, I I don't I want a good spot, man. Yeah, yeah. I want a good spot, man. Going into the 1984 season, Lotus and Brabham 
were seriously considering Senna. However, politics were getting in the way of a deal. Lotus considered replacing their current driver, Nigel Mansell, with Senna, but their sponsor, the British-owned Imperial Tobacco, wanted a British driver. A similar situation occurred at Brabham when their sponsor, Italian dairy manufacturer Parmalat, insisted on an Italian driver. Eventually, <laughs> Senna signed with Tolman. He was 22 and had already been driving for 18 years, already seriously competing for half of his young life. After years of dedication and sacrifice, he was at the top of the racing world competing on a Formula One team. His F1 debut would be held where his journey began, his home country of Brazil, at the 1984 Brazilian Grand Prix held in Rio de Janeiro. For Senna, this achievement must have felt like the end of a very long road. But everything that occurred up until this point was merely an origin story, a prequel to what would prove to be perhaps the most storied and tragic career in Formula One history. Senna had already proven himself to be a hero on the racetrack, a born winner who lived up to every challenge set in his path. Senna's story wasn't that of an underdog. It was that of a champion. And it was only just beginning. And that's where we'll pick up on next week's episode of Pass Gas. Boom, Dang, there so you go. I'm so excited. Woo-hoo, fired dude, up. This guy, ooh, <laughs> I am fired up. <laughs> I'm yeah, so excited for this. He's just an example of just someone who had the ability and devoted his life to that cause and was able to really make it happen. You know, he wasn't focused on anything else besides yeah. going around them twisties. He's like, I know what I got. Uh, no tire kickers. Uh, just give me <laughs> what I want. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll see uh, next next week. It wasn't as easy as he thought it would be. Uh, but there was definitely some triumph in his early years in, in Formula One. It's a really cool story. So stick around and uh, and check that out because uh, this series is going to be great. We're going to be doing uh, three more episodes on Senna. Uh, we know where we're going this time. <laughs> we have a set destination. And there's cars in this series. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's no Please murder. Please tell me there's Beatles. There. <laughs> we will do an entire episode on the Yardbirds. Um, so check that out. <laughs> I like uh, the Yardbirds. Just, <laughs> yeah. just kidding. Um, yeah, this is going to be a great series. And I'm really excited. And I think this is something that a lot of people have been asking for for a while. And it felt right to do it. So I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Uh, follow, follow us. Follow Donut if you haven't watched our YouTube channel. I think you'd really like it if you enjoyed this uh this episode of Pass Gas, we are at Donut Media on YouTube. If you want to watch us do this uh, from the comfort of your couch or on your TV, check out Donut Podcasts, our second channel. Uh, follow James on Twitter and Instagram at James Pumphrey and follow Joe at Joe G. Weber. Uh, very funny boys over there. Follow me, not so funny boy, at nah, Nolan J. Sykes. Oh, you're <laughs> so funny, dude. You you're know so you're funny. funny. Come on. I wish I was better at Twitter, though. Some people are so Some people are good Twitter's at it. hard. Yeah, Twitter is hard. Anyway, um, and follow Donut on all social media for some behind-the-scenes looks uh, at Donut Media. All right. I love you. All right. All right. Be kind. Fire it up. <laughs> yeah. Get her done. <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, 
Whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.